You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. And now, a message from Cyberbit. Mastering cybersecurity is like mastering a sport. You build muscle memory through rigorous practice. Then you train as a team to foster cohesion while operating under pressure. Like athletes, cybersecurity professionals thrive on hands-on simulation. But traditional courses, certifications, and open-source labs won't build you a winning team. You need Cyberbit. Cyberbit offers a hyper-realistic simulation environment for your SOC, IR, and C-suite to refine your skills. All using the market-leading SIMs, EDRs, firewalls, and WAFs they use every day. Cyberbit is offering CyberWire listeners a free live-fire exercise. Sign up your team now at cyberbit.com slash cyberwire. Cyber espionage in support of Belt and Road and of Beijing's claims in the South China Sea. Karakurt ransomware skips the encryption and goes right to the doxing. Black Cat ransomware is rising. Vulnerable microtick devices are bot herders' favorites. The log for shell zero days being exploited in the wild and will be a tough one to remediate. Julian Assange moves closer to extradition. Johannes Ulrich on changing user behavior. Our guest is Oliver Rochford of Securonics on the affordability of good security and shoulders surfing as a threat to Snapchat users. From the CyberWire studios at Data Tribe, I'm Dave Bittner with your CyberWire summary for Friday, December 10th, 2021. Threat intelligence firm Recorded Futures' study of Chinese cyber espionage outlines the ways in which the intelligence effort is designed to support Beijing's Belt and Road Initiative. The principal targets of the campaign are Malaysia, Indonesia, and Vietnam. The Philippines, Laos, Cambodia, and Thailand are also being prospected. Recorded Futures' Insect Group elaborates, quote, the activity highlighted includes a group we track as Threat Activity Group 16, which has compromised several high-profile military and government organizations across Southeast Asia throughout 2021 using custom malware families such as Funny Dream and Chinoxi, end quote. The activity against targets in Laos and Cambodia are particularly concerned with supporting Belt and Road, And the cyber espionage, while certainly bearing upon China's plans for economic dominance, also serves to support Beijing's side in territorial disputes, especially disputes in the South China Sea. Accenture this morning published a description of the still relatively unknown Karakurt ransomware gang, active since this June. It's still unclear where Karakurt fills in the underworld ecosystem, Karakurt, and the self-applied name is that of a venomous spider, is an extortion play, but it represents a kind of second-stage ransomware which doesn't bother to encrypt or otherwise damage or degrade its victim's data. Instead, it simply steals the data, 
and then threatens to publish them on its dump site, Karakurt Lair. The gang counts on the embarrassment they threaten as a sufficient goad to the victims paying up. In any case, Accenture thinks Karakurt is just getting started. Quote, Accenture Security assesses with high confidence that the group's operations have just begun and that Karakurt activity will likely continue to proliferate in the foreseeable future, impacting additional victims. End quote. The Black Cat Ransomware Affiliate Program, the Malware Hunter team tells Bleeping Computer, is deploying a sophisticated executable written in Rust. Black Cat came to prominence in late November, and it's being hawked in Russophone criminal markets. The ransomware itself, also known as ALFV, seems constructed from scratch without the use of templates or other pre-existing code. Security firm Eclipsium describes how exploitable, vulnerable microtick routers and ISP devices have become and remain popular among bot herders. The microtick devices are plentiful, powerful, and where they're vulnerable, they're relatively easy to incorporate into botnets. TrickBot reverted to them when U.S. Cyber Command disrupted its operations, for example, and they were also the bots of choice in the Maris botnet's then-record 21.8 million records per second distributed denial-of-service attack against Russian internet firm Yandex back in September. Eclipsium's advice to enterprise security teams is to get scanning, identify, and isolate vulnerable microtick devices. The U.S. Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency, CISA, yesterday released three industrial control system advisories. CISA also urges organizations to apply the updates Cisco has made available for multiple vulnerabilities in Apache HTTP server affecting the company's products. While those vulnerabilities are certainly important and while CISA's advice is worth taking seriously, another Java issue is attracting even more attention CVE 2021-44-228 is a zero-day affecting the Java logging package Log4j. This is widely used in a number of software products. A partial list, according to security firm Huntress Labs, includes products by Apple, Twitter, Steam, Tesla, a number of Apache applications like Apache Struts, Solar, and Druid, Redis, Elasticsearch, and any number of video games, Minecraft being prominent among them. The vulnerability is undergoing active exploitation in the wild. Late last night, Grey Noise reported that they were currently seeing two unique IPs scanning the Internet for the new Apache Log4J RCE vulnerability. Bad Packets tweeted earlier this morning, mass scanning activity detected from multiple hosts checking for servers using Apache Log4J Java logging library vulnerable to remote code execution. Some are calling the vulnerability Log4Shell. The record says, quote, Discovered during a bug bounty engagement against Minecraft servers, the vulnerability is far more impactful than some might expect, primarily because of Log4J's near-ubiquitous presence in almost all major Java-based enterprise apps and servers. Naturally, all the companies that use any of these products are also indirectly vulnerable to the Log4Shell exploit, even if some of them may be aware of it or not. Huntress Labs advises that users of Apache Log4j should upgrade to Log4j 2.1.50.rc2 
as soon as possible. They also point out that this isn't a complete solution and that the problem is so widely distributed that users will have to wait for individual vendors to push fixes. WikiLeaks impresario Julian Assange may be approaching extradition to the U.S., where he faces 18 counts of espionage and conspiracy to illicitly access a military computer. The Wall Street Journal reports that the high court has overturned a lower court's stay of extradition. Mr. Assange isn't out of appeals. He's expected to seek relief from the U.K.'s Supreme Court. The lower court that had blocked his extradition held that Mr. Assange would be at risk of suicide should he be held in the harsh conditions afforded by American prisons. But the high court was satisfied, the journal writes, that, quote, diplomatic assurances given by the U.S. that Mr. Assange wouldn't be held under the strictest maximum security conditions if extradited were sufficient to clear the path to extradition, end quote. Mr. Assange will remain in a British prison while his extradition process continues. The U.S. Justice Department described itself as pleased by the decision, but declined further comment. Shoulder surfing may be banal, but effective. ESET has posted a how-to Snapchat shoulder surf demo as a warning. The hacker looks over the user's shoulder, obtains their phone number, uses it on their own phone to tell Snapchat they've forgotten their password, then looks back over the victim's shoulder to see the confirmation code appear as a drop-down. So, use two-factor authentication and stay aware of your surroundings. And as a side note, since a lot of people are up in arms nowadays about the effect of social media on youth, Snapchat says it's marketed to the 18- to 24-year-old demographic. Our own teen spirit desk tells us, Okay, boomer, no way. In fact, teens and tweens who like each other no longer try to get one another's phone numbers, which would be the kind of thing some Gen X granny would do. They ask instead if they can snap someone. We hope they're paying attention to who's around them, but somehow we doubt it. Every day, your IAM tech debt grows. Your multi-generational services struggle to work together. Building an identity fabric can fix this. It makes all your identity tooling stronger and allows you to connect any app to any service you want to use. With zero coding, zero maintenance, and zero app downtime. Strata's identity orchestration platform separates the identity logic from your applications so you can optimize existing IAM tools and manage them in a single control plane. Now, every vendor, standard, and architecture work together. In short, building your identity fabric means you can secure your non-standard apps, keep your complex access policies, retire outdated IDPs, and modernize in record time. So build your fabric with Strata Identity and get rid of tech debt for good. Visit strata.io slash cyberwire, share your identity priorities, and receive a pair of AirPods Pro. Offer valid for organizations over 5,000 employees. Connect today at strata.io slash cyberwire. The IT world used to be simpler. You only had to secure and manage environments that you controlled. Then came new technologies and new ways to work. 
Now, employees, apps, and networks are everywhere. This means poor visibility, security gaps, and added risk. That's why Cloudflare created the first-ever connectivity cloud. Visit cloudflare.com to protect your business everywhere you do business. The best security in the world doesn't do your organization any good if you can't afford it. And despite security budgets trending toward increases these past few years, many companies find themselves faced with tough security choices. Oliver Rochford is security strategist and analyst at Securonics, and I checked in with him for insights on security affordability. I think that in the moment there are quite a lot of businesses who are finding that the ceiling of entry in some industries has, has just risen due to security requirements. You know, I think we talk about good security being affordable, but the point is that there's this point of affordability which you have to reach to even be a viable business. And if you can, even though it might take a time until you realize it, you're not actually able to operate securely. So the question of how much this is, I think it's a, it's an important one. Um, at the same time, of course, we do have ways of being able to lower that ceiling. You know, there are strategies to be able to do that. But it has to be clear to a lot of people that if you're using digital technologies, there's a, a minimum buy-in price. And what is that minimum buy-in? What is the, the least that people can do and still consider themselves to be secure? No, I think that's going to depend to a great degree on, on risk appetite. Um, but but the way that, that it's normally calculated is a you know, it's normally a percentage of IT budget, and IT budget is normally a percentage of revenue. And what's typical in that area? Well, depending on the industry, five to ten percent of revenue, which is normally IT budget nowadays. And some in tech you're gonna have that a lot higher, of course. And then the security budget typical is somewhere around five percent again. So if you have fifty million revenue, you'll have maybe $250,000, $350,000 to play with. And that sounds like a lot, but I mean, if you have 250 employees, that's about $80 per employee per month. And that has to include all of the, the user-facing stuff, the VPN, the two-factor authentication, the endpoint protection, but more importantly, also all of the stuff that, that kind of runs uh, in the back office from disaster recovery and backups and, and you know security monitoring and so on. So it's actually not that much money. So are are organizations being unrealistic in estimating the amount of spend that it takes for this? I think in many cases, they are definitely trying to stretch the budget to an unrealistic degree, right? I mean, mean, the biggest cost, um, aside from technology, are people, uh, as an example. And a lot of people will tend to buy the technology but not have the people to man it. We can use services. That's an ideal solution to this problem. But then you're you're moving from having to run your own security to liaising and managing these relationships, which for some organizations doesn't seem any easier. But it, it, you have to be able to fulfill this in some way. And I think that because it's an invisible cost until you're breached, for a lot of businesses, they do underestimate it, yeah. How do you recommend that organizations go and do their shopping around for these sorts of things? If I'm you're looking at two different providers and, and their prices are very different from each other, how do I go about that evaluation? So, you know, this is a typical lemon market, especially for services. You know, you know the original lemon market is because you can't tell how sour a lemon is before you bite into it. So why would mm. you pay more for one over the other? And it's the same as with services. It, you know, I, I can remember uh, when I was an industry analyst, from the time that somebody had started with a provider to the time that they were giving references for like industry research, which might have been three to four months, the satisfaction level had dropped tremendously. 
and that's because they started to learn that okay, um, you know, what's what was included, what wasn't included, how much um, elimination of false positives, for example, a provider will do using threat intelligence before they forward it to you and eliminate work for you. All of these things you don't necessarily know until you're a bit familiar with these services. So I would say, on the one hand, you know, make sure that you you vet a service provider in terms of speaking to the actual service delivery managers, to the actual analysts, to see what their process looks like in detail, which points their responsibility end and yours begin. And ask them what kind of companies in your industry and your size they already have. Try to speak to references who've been there longer, not new customers, because they're still a bit bleary-eyed, the ones who've renewed. And ask Hmm. them about the renewal rate as well. I think these are important points. And Lastly, you know, they, they're going to be in an ivory tower. They're never going to get to know your business in particular because they're managing maybe a couple of hundred organizations. But you can ask them how they try to mitigate that problem. If they're not even aware it's a problem, I'd run a mile. But they should know your type of business if you can get to know your business specifically, for example. That's Oliver Rochford from Securonics. There's a lot more to this conversation. If you want to hear the full interview, head on over to CyberWire Pro and sign up for Interview Selects, where you'll get access to this and many more extended interviews. Are lengthy security reviews pulling attention away from your security program? With the largest network of trust centers, Vanta can help you streamline security reviews to win customer trust, save time, and close deals fast. Proactively demonstrate security by showcasing key resources like your SOC 2 or ISO 27001 and provide real-time evidence for passing controls. And when a security questionnaire is required, Vanta takes the first pass for you. Visit vanta.com cyber to take a self-serve tour. That's vanta.com slash cyber. And I'm pleased to be joined once again by Johannes Ulrich. He is the Dean of Research at the Sands Technology Institute and also the host of the ISC Stormcast podcast. Johannes, it's always great to have you back. Um, you know, Johannes, people are starting to move around the country and indeed the globe these days. And that means that uh, those of us who are trying to keep track of them for security reasons are, are faced with some uh, some new patterns. What are you all seeing there? Yeah, one thing that sort of, you know, I ran into myself is starting to travel in particular international again. Companies over the last year or so uh, got used to people pretty much staying put. And, of course, at the same time, we also had a lot of attacks against uh, VPN servers and such. So there are really two options that an administrator has at this point. They can find a real solution like multi-factor authentication, but that's hard. Or they can do something simple that will at least keep the noise down in the logs, and that's blocking certain IP address ranges or only allow a limited set of IP address ranges uh, to connect to the VPN concentrator. And that worked well as long as people pretty much connected from home. Maybe they connected from a mobile phone or such, but they didn't, for example, uh, connect uh, from abroad to your VPN. And now as they start traveling again, you'll have a lot of unhappy users. 
<laughs> yes, I would imagine so. I mean, is this a matter of, of checking in with your users and, I, I don't know, putting geofences around certain people? Like, you know, I know Johannes is a traveler, but, you know, Dave likes to stay at home. Uh, that can work, but really I want to get people away from those geolocation blocks based on IP address. Uh, they're really mm. not doing you much good. They cut down a little bit in, of the noise in the logs, but an attacker with any kind of sophistication knows how to use a VPN themselves, make themselves appear to come from whatever country they would like to appear to come from, maybe even from a particular ISP they would like to appear to come from. These uh, IP blocks that people are putting in place are really you know, what's often referred to as security through obscurity. They they help a little bit, uh, but in the end, you, know, you have to do the work, you have to put the time in and do something real like patch your systems and set up multi-factor authentication. Anything else uh, is really just sort of giving you the appearance of security and uh, in the end, probably causing more pain to your users than to the attacker. Hmm. So, I mean, is that really the take-home here that uh, we should just be jettisoning this type, this particular type of security or trying to geofence users? Yeah, it, it really doesn't do too much good. And uh the potential of like a denial of service if, for example, a certain user's ISP is down and they have all of a sudden to use quickly another ISP for a backup and such, you're pretty much causing more pain to users than you would cause to a real attacker. That's not a situation we'd usually like to be in. Where do you strike that balance when you ha- have a user who is a frequent traveler and they're going all over the world? Is multi-factor authentication the easiest answer there? Yeah, multi-factor authentication is pretty much it at this point. Also, secure endpoints, in particular for travelers uh, that you harden their endpoints, the systems they're connecting from, so those systems themselves don't get compromised. That's probably one of the larger risks uh, for frequent travelers, in particular abroad. All right. Well, Johannes Ulrich, thanks for joining us. The Cyberwire. For links to all of today's stories, check out our daily briefing at thecyberwire.com. Don't miss this weekend's Research Saturday and my conversation with Ilya Volovic from Gemini Advisory. We're discussing how Fin7 recruits talent for a push into ransomware. That's Research Saturday. Check it out. The Cyberwire podcast is proudly produced in Maryland out of the startup studios of Data Tribe, where they're co-building the next generation of cybersecurity teams and technologies. Our amazing Cyberwire team is Elliot Peltzman, Trey Hester, Brandon Karp, Peru Prakash, Justin Sabi, Tim Nodar, Joe Kerrigan, Carol Terrio, Ben Yellen, Nick Vilecki, Gina Johnson, Bennett Moe, Chris Russell, John Petrick, Jennifer Iben, Rick Howard, Peter Kilpie, and I'm Dave Bittner. Thanks for listening. We'll see you back here next week.